Welcome to The Sacramentals, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. Well, Father, it's been a while since we've been able to record. I think you had some technology problems, and I was sick for a couple weeks, so we ended up pushing back our recording quite a bit. Um, but it's good to see you. How are you? Yeah, doing? good to see you too. Yeah, I feel like we had best laid plans. We were like, oh, we're going to record this many episodes, and then things got in the way. <laughs> yes, yes, as as tends to be the case. But um, but we're here now, and that's all that matters, isn't it? Yeah, technology issues on my end should be resolved. Um, we were having two different issues. I was having issues with our internet provider. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. Still haven't really resolved that. It's fixed now, um, but don't know why. And then my MacBook Air decided it wanted to go on strike. Mm-hmm. So, it you know, it must be a part of a union. Must be, must be. You need a right to work computer. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, internet service providers are bad. They're just all bad. We, we've been switching back and forth between two of them in our area, and every time it's just a pain, and I hate them all. But oh yeah, it's a necessity. It is. It's just monopolies, and like, oh, we're the only one you've got in this area, and it's like, okay, well, please make it work. I pay you enough. My favorite is whenever I call them and they're like, oh, we so care about your call. We so care about your business. And then they don't do anything helpful for two hours while I'm on hold and yeah. talking to people and being transferred from department to department. So yep. anyways, well, we're becoming very grumpy old men. Um, <laughs> so today uh, we are going to be talking about a fairly controversial topic. You know, our season this year is is geared at um, cultural engagement. We have done an episode kind of laying out a framework for that. Um, we have uh, talked with Dr. Junius Johnson about um, about imagination and cultural engagement. And our last episode together was on the environment um, and how we as Christians should think of the environment and engage on in issues that are related to the environment. Um, and so today we're going to talk a little bit more about the political sphere, um, at least in theory. We're going to be talking about the topic of Christian nationalism, um, Christian nationalism. And I think we should, at the beginning, perhaps draw some boundaries for the discussion in that um, we are not here to engage with a book that has become very popular of late called Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolf, published by Canon Press. I know there are probably listeners out there who would want us to engage with that book, Um it's just not something that we're going to do. Um, there are some really good help and helpful reviews about that book that we could recommend to you. Um, specifically, Kevin DeYoung has a good one in the Gospel Coalition. Um, so anyways, uh, we're not going to be addressing that book specifically. Um, perhaps some of our ideas and concepts will come up against some of the things in that book, but just know we're not explicitly engaging with it um, today. So it's probably good uh, where um, in a world where the where the term Christian nationalism is thrown about quite a bit for us to go ahead and define our terms. And I think it's helpful sometimes to say what we're not talking about before we say what we are talking about. So one use of the term Christian nationalism is a sort of pejorative buzzword to describe any sort of Christian engagement with the political where Christian nationalism is used to 
basically dismiss Christian thoughts about an issue out of hand. Um, and I don't think that we want to preclude consistent engagement from the position of a Christian who occupies a particular theological worldview. I mean, the way that you and I engage in the political is going to be shaped by the fact that we're Anglo-Catholic Christians, that we're priests, you know, all these kind of things. We can't, I, there's no way for me to section that off from who I am and who, how I vote and how I um, engage in the political sphere. Um, so like we did our episode on pro-life issues, um, on abortion. And I think, you know, I would I would unapologetically tell you I'm pro-life on the grounds of the teachings of the scriptures in the church. Now, I can make that case to you without explicitly quoting the scriptures, but I'm informed by them. Yeah. And 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 ultimately. You know, cr Christians, um, we, we participate in in the place, the context we find ourselves. Right. I mean, we're part of a nation. We're going to engage with what that nation does or doesn't do. Um, but ideally, it's informed by uh, by our faith, and that may look different. Uh, may look differently to 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 different people, right? Because you know, you and I agree on this point. But uh, where Catholic teaching leads us into uh, the public sphere, we are going to uh, to engage, hopefully in the most consistent Catholic way possible. So if Catholic social teaching directs us a particular direction, then that's how we're going to act in the world. And you mentioned pro-life, and that's a great place to... We might even have to support the unions that our MacBook Airs are in. Exactly, right? You know? Catholic social teaching <laughs> demands it of us. It does, but you know, we're, we are going to uh, position ourselves in the public sphere. We're going to position ourselves... Uh, in the political sphere in such a way that we can act on those foundational principles. We can act on those foundational Catholic principles. Um, Aristotle, for instance, you know, he says that man is a political animal. That doesn't get ignored by St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, he engages with that fact, and he clearly makes a Christian argument that as a you know, human being, we are political animals. We live in a polis. We live in a group of people in a society that has structures, that has government, and that all those governments that we find ourselves in across the world are, in fact, instituted by God. And because of that, we engage with it. Um, now, this may be jumping ahead in a small way, but, you know, one expression of that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than another expression of that. Now, there are nations, there are times in history, et cetera, that have maybe done a better job uh, than others. But we still engage with that context. We still, you know, we still vote. We still, unless, unless you are, you know, maybe Amish or, or something you know, you're within a community that's made an explicit choice to not engage those things. And I think you are getting on a really important point, and it is something that's going to come up a little bit later, I think, but that but that basically our engagement requires realism. We have to be realistic about the context in which we find ourselves, about the systems that we occupy, the institutions that we in, interact with. Um, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, and Christians throughout time immemorial have had to do this in different ways because of their various contexts. And 
so that that might sometimes look a little bit disparate um but it's united by a pursuit of our common life towards the common good right so um the way we engage uh, the the way the early christians engaged with the roman empire is not the same way necessarily that we in a in a representative you know democracy or a democratic republic would engage with the state but the telos is very similar in that we we want to reach a kind of common good um that's shaped inevitably by our metaphysical and theological positions about what it means for human beings to flourish um but that does require some wisdom on our part because you know i mean you could i guess reductively say uh, well, the common good would be reached when everybody agrees with me. You know, I think, yeah, all the problems will be solved as soon as everybody is as Anglo-Catholic as I am or, you know, as as Presbyterian as, you know, so-and-so is or as Lutheran as what. I mean, we can do that. And that's obviously ridiculous. So we do have to we do have to negotiate um, exactly how we how we deploy these ideas and 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 achieve them. Um, and that varies from time to time. Yeah, and I and I think to your to your initial point here, uh, just because a Christian engages in the the political conversation, or just because a Christian engages in the systems and mechanisms of the government or institution they find themselves in, that doesn't mean the same thing as Christian nationalism, um, and 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 it does get used that way sometimes. You know, we're, we're, we're at a particular point in Western history and uh, society that that has become the sort of buzzword, you know, a Christian saying, you know what, I don't like killing people. I don't like, you know, taking life. I don't like, you know, that that baby being murdered. That's equated to a sense of sort of Christian nationalism because of a hundred other factors and, you know, buzzwords and talking points and platform positions and all sorts of other things. And that's what makes this particular issue so tricky and so, so messy. It becomes a really sticky place to be because there's so many overlapping circles here. And just because we're a Christian voting or a Christian saying, mm, well, Catholic social teaching says this. So I, I, I think that, um, that doesn't, that, that does not make me a Christian nationalist. Right, right. And it's for this reason that it's been suggested of late by some, some folks in the public square that the Christian nationalism may not even be a very helpful term. So like, uh, scholar Miles Smith, who I think is ACNA had a piece in, in mere orthodoxy recently where he basically argues that, that the way Christian nationalism is used in our modern arena by detractors and by proponents of it doesn't really correspond to any co coherent historic reality, especially in the Protestant theological tradition where that term sort of springs up. Um, and I think he's right about that. I mean, there is a, an historical use of the term that doesn't really accord with the, with the contemporary usage. Like I'm, I'm, 100% sure that the January 6th crowd that stormed the Capitol does not have very much in common with Thomas Cranmer, right? And I think you could make the argument that Thomas Cranmer is, in a sense, a kind of Christian nationalist with the way that he sees the union between church and state. I mean, Anglicanism kind of as a, in, in, in its sort of classical expression, uh, kind of leans that way in, in some ways, though I think 
from our perspective as Anglo-Catholics, we're a little bit more skeptical of the way that classical Anglicanism arranges the church and state um, uh, relationship. I mean, that was a foundational critique of the Oxford movement. And it was it was something the ritualists pushed back on, right? I mean, it, there was sort of a a, a nonviolent disobedience uh, to certain laws that the state passed about religion. Um, that said, um, as as much as I think that 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 a, a person like Dr. Smith might be might be onto something there in in distinguishing the historic use between the contemporary use of the term, I also don't know that it's that easy or that helpful to dismiss the term entirely. Um, and I don't really think it has to be historically connected with a direct through line from like the magisterial reformers to today in order for us to use that term to identify what has become an increasingly prevalent and potentially destructive idea that has really deformed the American Christian imagination. I think that starts probably back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, at least in a real uh, explicit way. Um, and has certainly uh, affected people um, and the way they see things uh, in in our own time right now. Yeah, and I think too, you know, it's it's sort of sloppy. It's sloppy history. It's sloppy historiography to to sort of try and pinpoint some sort of sense of like proto Christian nationalism or, or or something that fits modern policy platforms and, and, um, you know, political campaigning. Um, it, but it is interesting to see that particular attempt being made by some areas of, uh, of sort of modern Western, uh, Christianity, um, looking at things like the, the reformers or looking at, at particular past individuals, you know, it's almost like trying to it's like trying to say that, you know, kind of early mercantilism is the exact same thing as modern free market capitalism. It's just not. Um, now, there might be some connective tissue and there might be, you know, some ideological through lines, but it doesn't do us any favors when we're trying to be precise and kind of understand what the particular term in question means and how it relates to us as Christians trying to engage in the world. Um, so I, that's, I think, I think that is, um, in some senses why, you know, the, the term in and of itself, Christian nationalism, um, yeah, it just, I find it very unhelpful in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think too, it's possible for us to say that a term like this can be kind of broad and, and perhaps even have some different meanings. What we have to be careful of when a term is complicated like that is equivocation, you know, where we begin to substitute the various meanings in different contexts and not make it clear what we're talking about, which is why we want to upfront make the distinction of what we're not talking about and what we are talking about when we use that term in an episode like this. So it's clear, I think, we're not talking about um, Christians who engage in the political from a Christian perspective. We think that's a good thing um, and, and that it's inevitable, really. I mean, how, how could you, if you're really a Christian and you really buy into um, what Christianity says, then you can't really divorce that from who you are. It's the organizing principle of everything. Um, so then what do we mean when we talk about Christian nationalism? 
I mean, obviously, Christian nationalism is a kind of nationalism. It's nationalism with a Christian spin. Um, that's, my, that's my favorite kind of definition, by the way. Just restating it with <laughs> yeah. the same words. Yeah. yeah. What is yeah. Christian nationalism? Well, it's nationalism that's Christian. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good place to start. No, um, exactly. It, it it actually is in this in this particular case, but that, I love doing that. Right. Because I I've heard it said uh, by our friend Father Mark Perkins. I think sometimes that that like a lot of what's called Christian nationalism is neither Christian nor nationalistic, uh, and I think there is something to that. Right. It's like the Holy Roman Empire. What <laughs> right. it wasn't holy. It wasn't. <laughs> roman and it wasn't an empire exactly exactly so nationalism in general i mean it, it's sort of that's the umbrella term right i mean there's a number of iterations of different kinds of nationalism um and we obviously can't cover all that today but but basically in general nationalism is a strong emphasis on loyalty and advocacy with one's particular nation or people group in mind um it emphasizes a country or a nation's uh, self-governance and self-determination, also seeking at the same time to foment a sort of common identity through shared linguistic, geographical, political, historic, and sometimes religious and ethnic facets as well. Um, so not every nationalist movement is necessarily based on a religion. I mean, I think like the French Revolution, for example, was based on the opposite of of religious identity. It was based on trying to purge religious identity. Um, not every uh, not every nationalistic movement is going to be um, pure as a sort of all about ethnic purity, um, though that does seem to be one of the big risks often of nationalist movements is that that is a temptation. Um, and I think I think too, you know, in in a lot of iterations of nationalism. Um, we see that that while there is this focus and support of one's particular nation and its interests, there it can be to the exclusion or detriment of other entities, other nations, and and so that that's a, that's a key facet to it. You know, it can lead to um, that sort of sense of ethnic parity and on all of those sorts of realities. Um, but it's kind of born out of, um, I was thinking kind of pre in prep for the episode of, of you know, examples um, just as a, a, for for listeners in terms of like American history um, that today might be called nationalism, but may or may not have been at the time. I mean, I think if you look at like Teddy Roosevelt's isolationism, um, you can, you can see a, a, a similar sort of trend that it's, we're gonna we're gonna do our thing in this country for its own sake and benefit, um, but that didn't stop the United States at the time uh, engaging in its own sort of empire building and um, and involvement in other sovereign nations. So it's a balance, right? And and things do sort of express themselves more or less um, when you when you look at at sort of nationalist movements in history. Absolutely. So so Christian nationalism then, which is fairly unique to the modern West, fairly unique, uh, at least in in the way that we're using the term, um, fairly unique to to American Christianity is one that is trying to recover a lost Christian identity. And I'm using scare quotes around recover and lost um, Christian identity. Um, in other words, 
uh, you know, there is a picture of our country that at one point it was this kind of wonderful Christian place. That identity has been lost. Uh, and it depends on which thinker you're referring to as far as when we lost it. But um, at some point we kind of lost our way. And so the Christian nationalist is one who um, who wants to sort of strengthen our particular American state while also uh, recovering these kind of lost religious ideas and practices. Um, and so uh, this is achieved in different ways. I think one of the most common ways that I've seen is through a kind of mythology of, around the American founders, uh, something like the American Patriots Bible, which is not some like total fringe crazy thing. You go to any Christian bookstore or any Barnes and Noble, and they will be selling a copy of the American Patriots Bible, right? Um, and and what you get in that Bible is throughout the throughout the scriptures, you have little inserts from you know quotations from church fathers or little you know pages about historical events that led to the founding of the country and those kind of things. Um, yeah, they, they're not quotes from church fathers. They're church from uh, they're quotes from American founding fathers. Right, exactly. exactly. You know, it's 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 one of those interesting things. I mean, you can even you can go to the uh, to Washington D.C. and you can see some pretty staggering examples of this in Washington D.C. This is a little bit of a, a tangent, uh, and we can talk about it later at another point. I'm not going to get off on it too much, but um, it's fascinating. All of the monuments in the um, in, in the Capitol are religious monuments. They're all modeled after temples of different styles and different types, but all of the monuments to the American founding fathers and to presidents, things like that, are all temples. Now, if you go into the Capitol building and you look up at the rotunda, what do you see? You see a painting called The Apotheosis of George Washington. This is literally the, the coming together of Christian iconography and Christian sacred art and a founding father trying to make a point about this connection to Christian identity. And I think, I mean, some scholars have made a, a, you know, more or less of this and, you know, saying that, you know, trying to trace the ideological threads and things like the American Constitution and, and you know, different founding and, and important documents uh, and, and where they are found within uh, a sort of broadly Christian tradition. The reality is, though, that it's a controversial task. Like, it is not clear, it's controverted, and to say that you're trying to return, trying to find this particular Christian past in America is a little strange considering the text of, of some of its founding documents. I mean, there's very clearly an article about the separation of church and state. Now, I don't think that indicates that they didn't think religion was important, but it's what religion is important. To what extent is it Christianity? Um, how is that expressed in, you know, today? Um, but certainly culturally, there is this thing where they're putting those two realities together. They're putting the kind of 
statehood of 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 the United States, the the sort of sovereign nation itself, and Christianity right next to each other. Um, I've never actually seen an American Patriots Bible, um, but that's probably because I have had never wanted to see one. You know, I was never interested in seeing one. Um, and so when uh, when you put that in the notes, I went and looked it up, and it was it's one terrifying. of those books that like follows me around. Like whenever I'm in any bookstore, and I turn around, and it's like, oh no, it's there. It 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 moves. It's staring. <laughs> its eyes follow you somehow. But, but no, but talking about this, I mean, you're exactly right. And and there is this kind of mythology. So like so like uh, I remember Glenn Beck. I think uh, maybe back in, I think this was back in the run up to the 2012 primary presidential primaries he was campaigning for ted cruz and he talked about how um how george washington made a covenant between god and america a covenant that that beck sees as continuing today still um and he also called our constitution sacred scripture alongside the bible um so that kind of imagery and that mentality of the of elevating our documents or our founding fathers you know i mean it's there's really not much difference um between the way that um that the fathers get talked about founding fathers and like a hagiography about a saint you know um and uh and then i mean the idea of of the constitution being inspired scripture is a little bit uh i mean blasphemous blasphemous right <laughs> um, and of course that's not to say that the constitution's not a good document and it's not to say that i mean obviously we've talked about this before i mean anything that's true is in a sense inspired by god but it's not the same thing the church does not recognize the constitution as you know authoritative in all matters of faith and practice like the scriptures are right and 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 you know if if your approach is a, a sort of balanced approach to say like hey the constitution there are good things in it it's not a it you know that we can objectively look at it and say good things in this particular document thumbs up right you can also look at a dozen other constitutions of a dozen other nations and say the same thing, right? We can look at the Magna Carta and say, well, that's that's got some good stuff in it. You know, we can look at any number of 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 sort of foundational documents uh, as as we know them today in terms of of sovereign nations and say, well, that's good. That has some good things in it. We can also look at some and say, that's bad. That's a terrible thing. Um, and, and there have been things in ours that we have to say that was bad and that was terrible. Hence the reason why it can be amended. Exactly. Which is a genius, <laughs> you know, feature of it. And it's important that we, I think, take the time to appreciate um, that aspect of it, that 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 um, felt need for self-correction over time. That's important um, and and certainly should inform our posture, I think, and how we engage. Uh, absolutely. But um, to say to 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 call it what it isn't, especially from a Christian context, you know, this should make Christians angry to say that a founding father or that you know the Constitution of the United States of America is on par with uh, one of the saints of the church or sacred scripture. Um, that should not be a, a point of pride. For a Christian, that should be scandalous to a Christian. And you should say, "Okay, we can identify good things in it, but no, it's not that." Right? This is this is a blindness in being able to discern what is true uh, and true in an ultimate sense. 
one other uh, feature of of Christian nationalism seems to be so. I mean, there's this there's this fusion of religious and political iconography. You know, we do view certain political figures, living and dead, through a messianic lens, um, either explicitly or implicitly. But there's also a reappropriation of of scriptural texts and theological doctrines, um, in what I would call is a, a, a more naked ideological use, like. I mean, obviously, the scripture should inform how we engage, not vice versa. But oftentimes, you see scripture used as sort of a uh, an after-the-fact justification for something. So, like, I mean, I don't know. Jesus' instruction to the disciples to bring a sword on their journey is often used as, like, some sort of gotcha proof text that, therefore, gun control measures should not be supported. Um, or... Um, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan has often been cited to support particular bills and particular kinds of immigration reform or healthcare reform or whatever. You know, oh, well, if you don't support this bill, then you're not a Good Samaritan, you know, um, when, of course, the reality is much more complicated. I mean, there may be reasons to to not support the bill, you know, uh, beyond that you hate immigrants or something like that. I mean, that doesn't it, it, that's not quite how it works. It's not that simple. Um, and, and so. Oh. This, sorry, sorry for interrupting. No, the, but the the same the same um, if the same thing took place in one of our churches, you know, if you or I gave a sermon and it was wholly and completely proof texting or you know some horrible form of eisegesis, and we just isolate this one thing and we we completely bend it out of its particular context, and we try to make you know, some justification for something else that we've done or said, people would recognize it, right? We would be, well, you know, Father Creighton's not a very good preacher or, you know, his... We would his, hope they would recognize it anyways. Right. But, you know, they, we, we, would, we would be putting ourselves into a position to be rightly criticized for sloppy um, homiletics, sloppy interpretation, um, lazy or deceptive uh you know exegesis etc cetera, etc cetera. we we would be opening ourselves up to valid criticism for not doing our job properly and that same thing needs to be applied within the christian context and how we engage uh, in the polis you know we we like you said we should be formed by christian reality we should be formed by um, what god says about human life and dignity or care for a neighbor or the immigrant or whatever we should be formed by what the church tells us about that particular issue and then as formed christians we go out and engage and we do our best job in applying the wisdom that we know um you know applying it with discernment all all of those sorts of things um we don't we we can't say, well, I like this particular idea or this particular policy platform. Let me go root around in, you know, a minor prophet to try to find one sentence that supports it. Um, we have to be better than that. Uh, because again, I think we said this in our first episode of the season, people are watching how we go about this particular project. And if that's the way we go about this particular project, then we're going to be opening ourselves up for, again, valid criticism and 
you know, opposition. Yeah, absolutely. And for that reason, I think it's helpful to like with most things, I think I would take more of a of a of a position that this is a spectrum, you know, so something may have a have have an aspect of this sort of nationalistic way of thinking wrapped up in it. Um, that's not maybe as far down the spectrum as as something else, you know, and so um, for that reason, I think we have to be kind of careful about when we do engage with it, that we don't necessarily always use blanket condemnations. And I also think, too, for the same reason, and, and you know, one of the themes we talked about here going all the way back to one of our first episodes, the one on pagan Christianity, is that that part of engagement, and I think this is even true um, on an issue like this, is an ex is extending a yes and a no, you know, to to whatever ideas we encounter um baptizing what is true and and figuring out how to sort of you know cast off the works of darkness uh very advent uh related language um of of an idea that that the the parts of the idea that are harmful right so like so like for example one thing i think that the, one impulse within christian nationalism that i think can be baptized is that that there is a concrete love for neighbor. Now, I think sometimes they define neighbor too narrowly. Oftentimes, I think they define neighbor too narrowly. Um, at the same time, you know, there is that quote, I forgot who said it, but the more I love humanity in general, the less I love the, the person in front of me. Um, and that is a real tendency, you know, I mean, we can talk about, you know, solving uh, X, Y, and Z global problems, and we don't really think about the, you know, the Rust Belt that's kind of been left behind, you know, in, in the sort of globalist arrangement of, of things as they are now, you know? So, I mean, um, we, we have to be, I think, attuned to that and that, and that our, our, our love for people should be expressed in concrete terms. Um, but that shouldn't be a, a limiting love or a trade-off love. Love is capacious, right? Um, in loving our neighbor, we then open ourselves up more and more, you know, as much as we can. Um, so anyway, so the, just a, just a word of caution there that we're not, um, we are trying to engage with this as consistently as we try to engage with everything else, which is there's some truth in everything, um, but we also don't want to get carried away just because there is some truth in it doesn't mean we endorse the whole thing as well. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that's a really good segue for us to 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 sort of jump into um, to this next section. Um, because when we look at it as a spectrum, when we look at it as how how do we engage in this particular project, um, we can, uh, you know, I think some people might be uh, upset by this, by what I'm going to say, but that's not, you know, nothing new. Um, we can do the same thing, right? We extend yeses and nos on both sides. So we can extend some yeses and, and nos um, to an idea of national sovereignty and and how that looks in the in the political and economic and and um social sphere we can also do the same thing to globalism to you know the 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 boogeyman of globalism that uh, so many people are afraid of um there is you know there 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 are features of that particular outlook that that um that are consistent with you know christianity truth is truth um 
but we have to be careful with it. And there's a sort of proper avenue to express these particular things. Um, and it can, it can either be done correctly and properly, or it can be done excessively. Yeah, absolutely. So I would encourage us to think about the our relationship to the nation state in particular, at least in, in our context, um, through the lens of, of virtue and how the church teaches us about virtue and really the, the Western philosophical tradition is that, you know, the, a, a virtue is the golden mean between two vices. One of those vices is usually a vice of deprivation and the other is a vice of excess. So like, it's not good to be a glutton. It's also not good to starve yourself. The, the virtue is temperance, right? It's, it's being able to kind of walk the line between starvation and excess in a way that's healthy and that's good for you. And if you are able to acquire that virtue, you end up being happier and flourishing, right? So every virtue finds itself in the middle of two extremes. And both of those extremes, you know, it, um, again, like we've been saying, have some sort of good wrapped up in them, right? I mean, to be a glutton is to love food. Food is good for you. It's created by God, you know, or to enjoy it. Um, we talked about this in our feasting and fasting episode back in the day. Um, but at the same time, right, it's, you know, to overindulge, like, it's like Chesterton says, you know, we should thank God for beer and wine by not drinking too much of them. Um, so right. Overindulgence can also can, you know, take what is a good and a healthy thing and turn it into a detrimental and, uh, you know, unhealthy thing, right? You can get sick from too, eating too much. It can lead to heart disease and diabetes or whatever, you know, particular thing it is. Doesn't mean that the thing in and of itself is bad, but it's use should be moderated to, 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 you know, to quote the, the humanists of the, of the Renaissance moderation in all things. So I would, I would contend that nationalism, Christian nationalism, as we sort of defined it, and as you kind of see it in its more popular expressions right now is a vice of excess and that it's corresponding vice of deprivation is a sort of apathy or even even hatred i guess right so the virtue i would i would say the virtue between apathy or hatred and nationalism would be patriotism um and i think aquinas actually gives us a foundation for this i think for aquinas we could situate patriotism as an expression of the virtue of pietas and there's a really great article in the Journal of Politics called Pietas, A Case for Ethical Patriotism in Aquinas by Teresa McCart. And she explains pietas as a virtue in general is filial piety. It's the devotion that children owe to their parents and ancestors as the sources of their physical being and upbringing from infancy. You know, so, I mean, you have parents and there's a, just a kind of natural obligation to them right? A certain deference that you show your own parents that you don't necessarily show everyone. Um, there's a kind of love, obviously, between parent and child that is very special. Um, and that love should be for the mutual benefit of both parties as well, right? I mean, I love my kids. So um, when they do something wrong, I speak into the situation to try and push them in the right direction, uh, redirect them, you know? Um, 
so anyway, so all of so I think this is this is a helpful framework then for understanding our own our relationship with our own country. Um, so expressed in terms of patriotism, pietas would mean a sort of duty and respect towards your country and your fellow citizens. In fact, I actually think the latter part of that is probably the most important, right? Um, our country is made up of our fellow citizens. We're bound together. We share a sort of common civic life together. And so that love of other really is at the heart of this, right? So our political engagement, if it's really geared towards human flourishing, should ultimately be an act of love because we're, we want people to, to at least go further down that telos of, of what's good for them, what they're, what they're made for. Yeah, and si I think situating it in in the the sort of family context is helpful, right? You know, we we understand how families operate as human beings, um, even if you know we don't have the best families or the the most loving families. There's still this uh, sort of understanding and and in a sense an innate knowledge of the relationship um, that's built in families, and families are, you know familial fictive collections of individuals participating in this family unit um that's why you can you know be um truly integrated into a particular family even if you do not share blood with them for instance you know um and so it's i think it's helpful to understand the 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 sort of mean here is patriotism um that patriotism is in of itself you know, a good thing. It's a good. It's a good virtue to be patriotic and to to have that sense of affection um, for your for your fellow citizen. Um, you know, it's it, the honor to those that formed you and raised you is a good thing. Um, you know, I, you know, very proudly, if you walk into my office right now, you'll as soon as you enter enter into uh, through the door, you're going to see um, you know Australian flag hanging on the wall. And it's not that I don't love the country that I currently live in, which is the United States. Um, there is there's a there's sort of a first love, though, right? And that's like a a, a virtuous sense of patriotism. Um, and um, you know, there's sort of the finding yourself in a nation or a country and the adoptive relationship that you then engage with um, if it's not your, you know, country of origin or something like that um those are all like those are all life-giving things um and i think patriotism when when expressed virtuously um should ultimately be like you said life-giving to to the collective flourishing of the of the group and i think aquinas is is a further help here because for him the real at least this is the case that um, McCart makes. The real foundational aspiration for him is justice for in, with, within patriotism. That's one of the goals. And justice is rendering others what they're owed or what they're due, right? So what this does not mean, pa patriotism is not perpetuating the status quo just to perpetuate the status quo or a sort of partisanship that can't admit fault, quite the opposite, right? 
if justice is denied, then the Patriot absolutely has to fight for justice um, because one cares about one's neighbor, you know. Um, and so this, I, I think you, you certainly find a, a correlation here with the with the classical tradition's insistence that acting virtuously is more important than pure success, right? The goal is not to bolster up a country that is malformed. The goal is to arrange the common life in such a way that that we can be properly formed towards the good, towards justice, you know. And again, like we say, that, that requires some wisdom as far as, as how we do that. I mean, you know, in my perfect world, if I was sort of the Pope dictator of, of everything, everyone would be an Anglo-Catholic, go to daily mass every day, you know, all that kind of stuff. But obviously I'm not fighting for that particular thing, not, not on a civic level. Um, but it does, it does, it does require some discernment on our part, I think, as far as what the right emphasis is in a given situation. Um, but it is important, I think, to, to emphasize that true patriotism does not preclude self-criticism. It does not buy, uh, in, uh, involve buying into a false mythology, quite the opposite, right? A real patriot, someone who actually lives a virtuous life, can be respectful and loving while also being reflective and self-critical at the same time, right? I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of what Socrates is doing in the, in the apology, you know? He's like, he's like, I've been doing this for your own good, and if you all won't appreciate it, then send me to some city where they will. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's born out of a sense of love, um, not out of a sense of superiority, right? A superior inferior relationship, right? I think the virtue of patriotism expresses itself um, with affection, right? Love, the true meaning of the word affection, um, where one loves the family one is in, and one is keen to make sure that it is the most just. Uh, flourishing verdant example of that family um, and so you know when you parent children you know you have to be self-critical you have to be you have to understand mm, that wasn't done very well we should amend that for next time um, for the sake of the family unit itself and so you know patriotism isn't the virtue of patriotism when it is this sort of superiority um, you know, this game of I'm better than you are, it's how can I make the thing that I am in as good as it can be? Um, so it's this that it's a sort of internal regulation rather than than based on sort of external um, measurement, right? We're better than that country over there because we do X, Y, and Z. Well, how about we fix A, B, and C? And make sure we're the best version of of what we are that that we can be. Yeah. So then, so if the if the if the virtue is patriotism, it's this kind of healthy love for one's country and one's neighbor. Um, the danger, the vice of apathy, the vice of deprivation, I think, or hatred. I don't know. I I keep going back and forth as we were preparing this as to whether the 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 vice of deprivation would be hatred or apathy. I mean, hatred is a kind of active malice towards something, right? Um, whereas um, apathy is is a sort of passive neglect. It's not even caring enough. Um, and I guess in in some ways, both are are very harmful. Um, perhaps the same, perhaps different expressions of a of a of a larger vice. But um, 
but in in that situation you know not caring about one's neighbor uh not not caring about laws that would affect the good of everyone only seeking laws that would affect benefit for yourself i think that's certainly a marker of this um or just in generally not or just in general not really caring about the sort of common plight you know i mean one of the vert, one of the um standards in catholic social teaching is solid solidarity and subsidiarity right um and apathy sort of prevents both of those things from really being very successful i think because you're not really standing with other people um who who are your neighbors and you're not really engaged enough to make things happen especially at the local levels where that's really important exactly yeah and then the and then that would mean christian nationalism would be the vice of excess right um that 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 there is too much of an emphasis on particularity so that we lose sight of the sort of universality of it right um i mean we could certainly do this in christology right where we emphasize the particularity of christ um in ways that we can't really see then how he's the universal redeemer mediator you know um liberator um and that that becomes a, a problem very quickly um so so this becomes a vice of excess and i think too where christian nationalism has become the most common and and I, again we're not talking about that particular book that came out recently but but in general the the place where you kind of get the strongest push towards nationalism is in reform circles and one of the things that the reformed kind of emphasize often is a sharp distinction between nature and grace and you get that in this particular conversation where natural law and grace are conceived of as two very different things now great i know you and i have had conversations about this off the air but i think we would see that sharp distinction as a real red flag wouldn't we yeah i mean there's a I was thinking about this too, you know, um, it's not wholly unique to reformed circles, um, but, you know, they do play with the idea of like theonomy a lot um, in some more extreme expressions of reformed theology. Uh, basically, the law of the land has to conform to you know, the biblical law um, and advocating for that. But yes yeah, see, seeing this this hard and fast distinction between nature and grace is always i think um problematic because it, it allows the person who's making that distinction to basically keep both of those things in hermetically sealed boxes right we can put nature into its tupperware and grace into its tupperware and they never really interact and if that's true, then, you know, sort of paradoxically, um, contrary to what these particular people are trying to do, you know, I don't think any reformed person is trying to, you know, make a way for, um, let's use a general term, secularism. But by alienating nature, by alienating the human person, our being, our relationship to God is created by alienating those two things. We actually make secularism easier. 
it becomes a, a an easier project to do something like what Kant does, where he you know basically says, well, can't really talk about that supernatural stuff, so chuck it out. Um, and so we're just going to focus on the natural stuff, and and then you get sort of secularism, or you get this sort of competing sort of reality, you know, like nature is competing against God, and kind of we became we 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 become sort of actors acting in the same play, um, and you know God's just bigger and a little bit more powerful than we are, um, which destroys the the gap, the ontological gap between creature and creation, or creature and creator, um, which has to main, be maintained, but there's also the relationship that creator has to creation. Um, we are contingent on him. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think when when we try to isolate natural law the same way, there's only the only real way to interpret natural law. This might be controversial too. The only real way I think to interpret natural law is through understanding God's direction in natural law. <laughs> like a Christian interpreting natural law is 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 sort of the the proper exercise. Um, not saying that they're two separate things. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, just like I mean, anything requires interpretation, right? I mean. The scriptures themselves, if you don't interpret them from a certain position, a certain with a fundamental orientation and posture, you're not going to interpret them correctly. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to natural law. Um, yes, there are things I think that are evident in creation, which would make sense because God is the creator and everything comes from him and points back to him. So, yes, there are certain patterns that sort of go with the grain a little bit more than others yeah. but as far as understanding those patterns seeing how they fit together being able to rightly articulate them that does require one to um kind of see the bigger picture which you can't have without ultimately without christianity um you know right. we, i mean even great thinkers like plato who i love or aristotle who i also love you know are very wrong about some specific ethical questions that come up right because they don't have Christianity as a key to natural law. Right. And I think that's the that is the way to 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 phrase it that that there's sort of a key to it. Um it's very difficult. I mean, you can you can identify in life, you can identify factors that contribute to a particular thing. You can identify causes. You can identify sort of natural repeating patterns or repeating sort of um foundations. And, you know, Aristotle and Plato and others, Socrates, uh, even, you know, Heraclitus, Parmenides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they do a good job of identifying certain things, right? Aristotle is clear when he's identifying, you know, a thing is what it does, right? <laughs> he's like, okay, I can observe that and I can see it. But understanding how that applies and how that relates to the bigger picture you have to understand its telos. You have to understand its purpose. And you can't always get to its purpose without Christianity. You can't always get to its purpose without setting natural law within the context of the other laws, right? Of supernatural divine law, all these different things that are playing together, right? It's a, it's a, uh, 
it's like isolating one instrument in a quartet. It's very beautiful. I love listening to just violin music, right? Just a violin playing is fantastic. Get a lot from it. But man, when it's set against three other instruments, right? A cello and a viola, et cetera, et cetera, and it grows into a symphony or whatever it is, it becomes even more staggering and even more understandable. And I think the same is true of how we view um, view natural law. We have to view it in relation to to its purpose in in revealed to us um, by God. I think you're exactly right. And I think that when we when we embrace this divide between nature and grace the way that it often is, there are a couple ramifications to that that end up working itself out in really destructive and bad ways. So, I mean, obviously what you isolated earlier, this idea that this is really what kind of creates the uh, space for secularism. You know, this is what, um, I guess, creates a sort of secular imagination, you know, um, a kind of natural beatitude is is a term that sometimes gets thrown around, right? Um, but I also think, I mean, even within the person, what this does is it allows one to kind of bifurcate oneself so that your Christian witness and your political engagement are in some ways very different, right? If in the, if or you're just, in the, in the best interpretation, it's two circles in a Venn diagram that happen to overlap a little. Right, 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 right. I mean, obviously I think if you're a Christian, even of any stripe, you know, your convictions on certain issues will be set by the Christian teachings of the church and the scriptures and all that, but that that there becomes a a, a way of conceptualizing uh, one's engagement as a either a citizen engaging the state or as a politician where you where you don't have to maintain a consistent Christian witness, at least not in the way that you actually behave. Um, so I mean one way we would see this is in the in the sort of constant excuses that are made for certain figures, you know, well, they're on my side, they're sort of means to a larger ends. So it's okay. You know, I can kind of overlook that uh, behavior that I wouldn't overlook in someone else um, just in order for me to, to achieve the ends, you know, in, in other words, the means justify the ends, right? Or the ends justify the means. Sorry, got that backwards. Um, the other thing that this does, I think, the radical nature grace distinction is it really prevents us from effectively being able to extend a yes and a no when we engage with people, right? Because if a doctrine like total depravity is true, the way that that many reformed folks articulated and think about it, then it, there's not, I mean, it is harder to find the good in something. Um, but what we're saying is no, uh, there's good everywhere. It's like at the end of, uh, of Diary of a Country Priest, grace is everywhere, you know? Um, and and so we need to be able to find that and isolate it. And that doesn't mean being soft, I think, on on certain things and not being able to speak truth and not being horrified by evil. But it does free us up in order to extend that yes and no better when we see the world sort of imbued with God's grace, um, as opposed to making that radical distinction. And finally, I think the result of that, the inability to be able to extend a yes, really only ever results in a kind of ascetic disdain. And we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but but this idea, ascetic disdain, is sort of the opposite of capitulation. You know, we, we talked about this earlier, um, I think in the first episode. You know, it's this it's this total um looking down on others um on the world 
and again, we have to be careful how we use the term world, but here we mean that the intricate connections that make up the reality that we inhabit, right? Um, and that that becomes a really uh, a really ineffective posture to do real cultural engagement from. Um, it's certainly, in my read, not the posture that our Lord takes when he engages with tax collectors and prostitutes and you know all all, all the other sorts of people that he engaged with. And so I think um, three kind of points to start to bring our conversation to a close um, as far as a way forward. It's really important, in my opinion, that when we engage in the political, um, in whatever context we find ourselves, that we begin with and insist on our Christian uniqueness as a way of combating both secularism and the excess of nationalism. So I'm reminded of like the John Chrysostom quote, I'm a Christian. He who answers thus has declared everything at once, his country, profession, family. The believer belongs to no city on earth, but the heavenly Jerusalem. You can also think of Clement of Alexandria, who says, if you enroll as one of God's people, then heaven is your country and God your lawgiver. This is not an excuse for apathy to say like, oh, I don't care about my country then because I'm a citizen of heaven. You know, these are not necessarily competitive realities, but rather the one is subordinated to the other. You know, um, I'm a Christian and that conditions how I'm an American citizen and how it's I engage. In, it's informative, right? It's yeah, it's it's not competitive. It's informative. Your right. your citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem informs your citizenship in whatever country you find yourself in. I'm not 50% a citizen of heaven and 50% a citizen of America. I am, I am in a sense, both though. One of those things is essential, right? My heavenly citizenship is absolutely essential. It's non-negotiable. It's the organizing principle of who I am. Whereas my American citizenship is accidental. I mean, I could get up and move to England or um, France or, you know, Germany or somewhere and I could become a citizen there. Um, I could change that. Um, right. But, but my identity as a Christian precedes everything. Um, and so what that means is that there's a dignity to our particular contexts, I think. Um, so so when I say like my identity as an American is is accidental, that doesn't make it, in my read, less important. It contextualizes it and becomes the an avenue through which I live out my Christian vocation. Right. The the. It, it becomes the avenue that you exercise your Christian citizenship. Right. Just so like, like if, if I'm in France, right, me being a French citizen becomes the avenue through which I both manifest and sort of actualize the reality that I am a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. Right. It becomes right. the means by which we advocate and activate that reality in our lives. Like, they 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 do go together, right? Being a good Christian means that hopefully you'll be a good French citizen or a good Canadian citizen, et cetera, et cetera. And we see this with all aspects of our identity, right? I mean, so like Galatians 3.28, St. Paul talks about, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And, and that is deeply true. I mean, sacramentally, it's true. Ecclesially, it's true. You know, I don't 
Uh, I don't have more of a claim to baptism or less of a claim to baptism because I'm a male, you know. Um, but it doesn't erase the sort of reality that my embodiment is is as a male, right? It transfigures my maleness. So, so part of my maleness, you know, is I'm a husband to a wife and I'm the father of children, right? And and those become avenues for me to live out my in Christness. And so the same is true. Just like just like me being the father of of my kids and the husband of my wife doesn't mean I should look at other families with disdain or hatred or you know as inherently competitive with my family. The same I think can be cross applied to the issue of of our nations, right? Um I'm an American. I want what's best for America. I want to see certain things happen so that we, you know, progress down um, the way that we should. But that doesn't, I, I, I don't see that calling as inherently competitive with wanting the good for a German or an Australian. The only country that that might be true of is the Netherlands since we play them in the World Cup um, coming up. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I, I felt the same way about Denmark. Uh, when it, when, <laughs> when you Australia have to like the playing. Danish though, because uh, Kierkegaard. But anyways, um, so so this idea that Christianity should be the organizing principle on an a priori level from any of the sort of accidental features of who we are, our maleness, our femaleness, our Jewishness, our non-Jewishness, um, etc. A second point I think we have to remember is that we absolutely have to remember our contexts, okay? Um, and I think one one of the unfortunate things that happens, um, because I think we're in an interesting moment right now of shifts, and I think uh, uh, two to three generations ago, um, the way things were in the United States were sort of just taken for granted. Um, and so we're at a time now where people are starting to conceptualize alternative arrangements of of how things can be moving forward. Um, that's happening on both sides. There's pretty radical upheaval on the right and the left. It's really important that whatever political strategies we choose and whatever political outlooks we take, that we are aware of the context in which we inhabit. And I think one tendency, at least in certain circles, is a kind of utopianism. It's a kind of unrealistic strategy. Like, we are in a, I mean, you look at, you look at, at Pew studies about church attendance and about evangelical identity, um, things are not looking great for the American church in terms of numbers and in terms of social and cultural hegemony. Um, perhaps we could be sad about that, and and I think we should be. I mean, we had, you know, more people in our church. The church had more of a, a credible voice um, on issues. That that was those were good things. Um, but now we're losing, we're hemorrhaging people and it doesn't really matter what tradition you're in. Um, things aren't great. And even the people that we have are often malformed, um, and not, not really rooted in their, in the Christian tradition in, in great ways. Um, so doubling down on the notion that America is this sort of, you know, wonderful Christian place. And, you know, if only we can rewind the clock 30, 40, 50 years, I just don't see as a very realistic uh, approach to things. Um, and I think if if we spend our time, energy, and political capital trying to realize that vision, we're going to end up sort of wasting our time and money and political capital and energy. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that's it's the like problem every- of sort of like uh, it's 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 a type of revisionist history, right? I mean, it's 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 a it's just an approach that says, oh well, let's. It was better in the good old days, right? And that everybody has that inclination to say, oh, it was better back when, right? You know, plenty of times I hear a 90s song come on and I'm like, oh, man, that, that's a banger, right? Like, music is so good from the 90s. And then it's like, well, I mean, the 90s weren't great. Or the 80s or the 70s. You know, they all have their problems. They all have their their issues. And And going back to a canonical century, going back to the to the that point in history where you think everything's okay it wasn't okay for some people i guarantee you that um and it may have been you know you just weren't aware of the problems that were being you know pushed down the line from positions and policies and interpretations and things that you made in the 1950s um ideas work together they they coalesce into into other things right um and so it's really it is really dangerous to to think of it as just like well we'll we'll just go back to the way things used to be in in a utopian sort of way and everything will be perfect and fine and we'll we'll be successful and blah 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 um or in some ways you know let's carve out this radical new thing over here that is influenced by when it was you know, back in the old days when it was good, uh, and we'll just live our little existence in this little enclave. That's also problematic. It's the same utopian problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's unrealistic. It's not helpful. Um, it's kind of like I mean, every now and again, you run into someone who's like, "Well, I'm a monarchist," you know, and it's like, "Well, great," you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but what is that going to do uh, for us right now? Not much. Um, so anyways, yeah, so it's important, I think, that we be realistic about the about the road ahead. Um, I think that road's going to be kind of harder, at least um, at least with the same imagination that Christians had a generation, two generations, three generations ago. Um, and so uh, anyway, so, yeah, we need to avoid utopian strategies. The third and final thing. Is I think it's really important that we avoid uh, what I see as a very increasingly common attitude of ascetic disdain. Um, that that kind of looking down on that kind of um, unhelpful bitterness towards others. I mean, the 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 sort of prime example of this is the is the parable with the uh, with the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? And what does the Pharisee pray? Well, thank God I'm not like this tax collector, you know. Um, and and of course it's the tax collector who who ends up being justified, not the Pharisee. Um, and I think what you see in our current arrangement has is a an increasing um kind of toxic partisanship that really leans into and survives off of the otherization of whatever the other side is um and again this is not to sugarcoat that there are people who support really horrific things or that you know some policies are really bad and should be opposed you know but um but when we come with that posture especially when it's directed at other people more than just their ideas or a policy then i think it impedes our ability to evangelize and i would think 
and hope that most of us would agree that our ability to evangelize is more essential than our political engagement. Um, that evangelization is more central to our vocation. Um, again, not that political engagement is not important or that we shouldn't do it, but that that we need to have our priorities in the right order. To end our time, um, we had one very interesting question from a listener, uh, listener Harrison, um, from our Facebook group. And he asks uh, a pertinent question, I think. Um, what kinds of displays of national pride are appropriate during mass? Um, if you're aware of the uh, of the history of the Episcopal Church in the United States, you know that there were, at least at one point, um, pretty open displays of of uh, sort of national pride during religious services. So Harrison specifically means things like the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem, other patriotic songs or sermons and talks expressly related to American history, etc. So Father, what do you think? Yeah, this is a good one. Um, I'm going to start by um, sort of paraphrasing a sermon that uh, a priest I know uh, gave not too long ago, actually. So this this question came up, right? This the this particular sermon was in relation to a a uh, an American holiday, um, and he made a really good point. He said the church is an embassy of heaven. And if you have ever spent any time abroad, and if you've ever seen an embassy or a consulate, if you go into the embassy or consulate, do you see the flags of other nations in an embassy, say the United States embassy or a French consulate? Do you see a German flag in the atrium? You do not. Do you see a Turkish flag? You do not. Do you see a Canadian flag? You do not. The church is an embassy of heaven. And we have our standard proudly displayed when you enter into the church as to who as, as to who it belongs to, right? That standard is the cross. It's a crucifix. That is the Christian standard. That's the flag of heaven. And it is incongruous. It is inconsistent. It's confusing to set that standard next to the standard of any particular nation. Right? There's a sense in which you walk into church, you are walking into heaven. You are in the heavenly nave, as it were. Um, that altar is the heavenly altar. And so while everything we've said is true, that one can be a good patriot, one can be, uh, you know, an American and a Christian, like those do not interfere with each other, that, you know, your American citizenship can be an expression of your heavenly citizenship. It's also true that the church is an embassy of a foreign nation. And we have to be proud of that fact. We have to be um, aware of the fact that the iconography, the images that we present in the church tell people 
where they are and what their purpose is. And we confuse, we confuse people when we say, you know, here's an American flag right next to the altar. What are we worshiping? Which one? Right? And again, I, there's nothing wrong with, um, with the virtue of patriotism. If you look in the missal, uh, there, is a, there, there is a mass pro patria for the country. And it is clearly outlined that, that, that patriotism is a virtue. We can pray for the country that we live in in church. We can pray for our leaders. We can do all these things. That is perfectly fine. But it is not a place where we're going to be making a statement about another country. We're there to make a statement about heaven. We're there to make a statement about um the supernatural reality that we're worshiping God. That is the primary focus of why we are in church is to render our duty to God, which is worship. And so I think that's a good point. I think it just makes it, it makes a confusing statement when you've got um, America and Christ sort of on the altar at the same time. And uh, we need to be careful. Everything we do in the church has meaning and it has purpose. The songs we sing in church are to the worship of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. End of story. If there are if there's a hymn in your hymnal that does not include that reality, you shouldn't sing it. I don't care if it's you know a, related to a country or if it's just a nice song or whatever. If it does, if it is not worship of Almighty God, then don't do it. That's what we're there to do. Um, and so I think I think it's important to keep that in mind. I think it's important to, uh, as Christians, be comfortable with the fact that in church we do what we do. Right? You know, you didn't go into a church in the, uh, in, you know, in the year three hundred. And, you know, there's this giant image of this, you know, of the emperor right next to the altar. Sorry, but no. Um, so you, you can hold those things in tension. You can pray for your country. You can be patriotic and you can express that virtue truly and wisely. But you can't uh, set America or whatever country alongside um the sacrifice of the mass, for instance, and say, yes, these two are the same thing, or these two, you know, are, are, are you know, one and the same, we're, we're, we're worshiping both. Um, that, that, that should feel icky uh, to Christians, because we're not there to worship Caesar, we're there to worship God. Put the right. put the render flag in the God. narthex. Render unto God what's God's is the is what our Lord says after he says render to Caesar what's Caesar's. We we church, especially the mass, is not the place to render Caesar anything. That's not American territory. It's heavenly territory. Yes. Well, that's a great question. Thank you, Harrison, for asking that. Um well, this has been a fun discussion, Father. Yeah, this has been a this has been a good one. I mean, I think 
you know, I'm sure we'll we'll anger a few people. But it uh, is ever be, the way. We wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't do that, right? Afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. Um, right. But as we come to the end of the episode, um, we like to do everybody's favorite segment, which is what we're into. And I think you and I are into the same thing lately, which is the World Cup, the global Ozzy, Ozzy, World Ozzy. This is the one kind of nationalism we're we're okay with. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. World, we're gonna world be, cup nationalism. We're going to be nationalist and globalist at the same time because it is a <laughs> World Cup. Well, my country is better than your country. Um, no, I'm 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 absolutely loving the World Cup every four years. It's it's just so much fun. Um, I have watched almost every match either you know on my phone or whatever else i'm doing i've got it going and yeah it's been a crazy world cup so far not what i think anyone expected um some absolute absolute upsets i mean saudi arabia coming out of nowhere japan coming out of nowhere um impressed with like the us is playing really well canada was playing well um you know tunisia coming out of i mean everyone is it there, there's been a lot of uh really fun footy to watch and i think um i think it's only going to get crazier too now that we're we're getting close to exiting the group stage and get into the into the knockout stages it's going to be i think it's going to be a, a exciting exciting one to watch God raises up nations, he destroys them, hoping that the Netherlands were created just for this purpose of the U.S. <laughs> advancing over them on Saturday. <laughs> I, I, think will, I will say, you know, if if um, I don't I don't always talk about uh, sports and athletics. Um, I think uh, I think some of our, our, our listeners will know that Father Wes is a is a big uh, big sports guy and i don't always uh chime in but when it comes to this i'm a fanatic so um yeah i i think the u.s has a uh if they sh if if they show up and play and they attack and um uh, you know actually try to get some movement on offense there is a chance which would be unreal if if the u.s won oof don't get my hopes up if I'm they play fragile. if they play old school slow um you know sort of lethargic u.s football then yeah they're not gonna not gonna do very well but they have a real chance i mean polisic is a star yeah he's been very fun to watch very fun to watch um yeah so we'll see how it goes we'll see how it goes yeah, I thought I, be I believe that we will win. I was convinced Belgium was had a chance. I mean, talk about golden generation, like, oof, with Lukaku and De Bruyne, like they they had they had a stacked team, and they they didn't make it out of the group stages. This is this is yeah, it's the best time okay. of the year. <laughs> well, we'll have to do a spinoff. Sacramentalists watch the World Cup. Oh yeah, maybe maybe we can do a, a you know Patreon event because you know Patreon I'll be, watch party. Yeah, you know, we have we have to we have to put some, put it behind a paywall or something because we don't want to 
scandalize people because um, <laughs> as my wife says, m- me watching one of my one of my teams um, do well, lots of excitement. Uh, if things go poorly, um, my witness is compromised. <laughs> same, same, same. Except I, I like sports so much that it's not just once every four years that my witness is in jeopardy. It's, it's at least three seasons of the year. <laughs> summer, I'm a pretty good Christian during the summer because there's not much by way of sports on. So right. Well, well, listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. We um we recently got our um numbers back from Spotify for their their. 2022 wrapped and uh we're just so thankful to you for uh sticking with us uh we know the show's changed a little bit over the past uh year or so but we're very excited about the direction that it's going and uh and we are just thankful that you are coming along with us um as we as we go through this journey together um if you uh wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on on itunes or um, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, that would greatly benefit us. Um, and of course, you can join the communion of Patreon Saints for just five dollars a month over at Patreon. Um, you get access to our Discord, which is quite a lively community with very interesting discussion um, and uh, and some other things that we uh, we do here and there. Um, so, anyways, uh, thank you again for for listening and um, and be sure to uh, to share us as much as you can on social media. Father Creighton, would you uh, pray the prayer for the country um, in the Book of Common Prayer, page 36? Absolutely. I also want to echo just thanks to to our listeners. Um, The the numbers always kind of astound me um, when we look at them and and see what the the metrics say. But uh, we appreciate everything you guys do and um, the fact that you are active and uh, that you you enjoy listening to us and chatting with us on, on Facebook or on the discord. Um, so we really appreciate it. Uh, let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people, the multitudes brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. And do with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entreat, uh, entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law, we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In a time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. All which we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.